This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Artist Christian Lamlave Ruff is a photographic artist. He's based here in Melbourne. Uh, and his work focuses on social, cultural, and environmental issues. So there's a lot to unpack in any of your exhibitions, I suspect. Christian, welcome mm. to Triple R. Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to be here. Now, your exhibition has been travelling around the country quite a bit. Um, how difficult is it to, to tour an exhibition, a photographic exhibition? Uh, it's not the easiest task to organise, especially being an independent artist. You know, I don't have anyone else organising it for me. It's just getting on that laptop and sending emails and making phone calls and sending catalogues around the country. But I think um, really as an artist just to exhibit in your hometown or your home city once and then call that show done, it's um, a lot of effort for a very quick burst of exposure and sharing that work with people. So I really wanted to... I mean, this this series of work really looks at um, what I think are kind of current Australian issues um, and so I wanted to take that to a, a broad Australian audience so I thought right let's um, let's go to Perth let's go to Alice Springs um, the show's coming to Melbourne now and and uh, I believe it's going to be going up to Darwin later in the year as well so um, yeah it's just really good to be able to share it with that broader audience and have lots of different conversations with people from different backgrounds yeah now one of the central images in the exhibition uh and which gives it its name uh is a photograph of pine gap which is a military outpost essentially a a strategic um uh base for intelligence gathering and information which has been a bane of political contention in Australia for several decades. Mm. Uh, back in the in the 70s and 80s, it was a hot topic. Yeah. Uh, and people, yep. there, was, there was the whole Close the Gap campaign yeah. of people wanting to get rid of Pine Gap. For the last decade or more, it seems like most Australians have forgotten it's even there. I know, and that was part of the inspiration into photographing it. Um, firstly, a lot of the photographs out there of Pine Gap currently were either out of date or they were very blurry or they're just someone had taken it with their iPhone from the top of Mount Gillen, which Pine Gap's, you know, 15 k's away so it's just some kind of bubbles on the horizon so i thought um this is a really important place and a real epicenter of kind of political uh, and military power throughout the world so i thought let's go and and photograph it in a more detailed way so that it would come back into the um that kind of national conversation about what it is the fact that it exists um I mean, yeah, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, there were a lot more um, protests around, you know, Close Pine Gap. Um, But just recently, last year in September, was the 50th anniversary of Pine Gap and there was a renewed kind of uh, energy and uh, discussion about what it was doing and a lot of protests and conversations in Alice around what it's doing and and, um, I guess the risks involved in this new age of, um, you know, US militarism and Australia's involvement in it. Um, So it was really nice to, or really rewarding for this image to be uh, involved in like a a social kind of um, political movement in Alice Springs around that time to be, when I was in Alice and initially photographed, I didn't even want to tell anyone that, you know, just mentioning the word Pine Gap with my phone in my pocket, I was kind of paranoid. (laughs) Whereas then, you know, two years later to be around town, talking to people, getting on radio, putting posters up about it, it was actually really nice to have that 
freedom to be able to talk about it and not be scared anymore. Were you nervous about taking the photo? Was there any sense uh, that uh, uh, you've obviously just said you were already uh, anxious and nervous even discussing Pine Gap while Mm. you were in the area? Were there ramifications afterwards? Did you you receive legal letters, for example, from the government saying, why have you photographed this highly sensitive facility? Um, I think it was... a pretty incredible experience photographing it. Um, it was, you know, difficult to get to. It was hot. It was remote. It was, um, you know, a real adventure just getting there in the first place. But then afterwards, um, I I basically didn't publish it for about a year and a half on the grounds that I had some pretty sound legal advice from a couple of, um, you know, well-respected lawyers. And, and they just said, well, you know, don't really, don't do it. Our, our advice would be, you know, just uh, just sit on it and pretend like it. You didn't do it. <laughs> That's probably the safest thing. And that was deeply unsatisfying um, because I think this image is in the public interest. Um, and as a photographer, it was something that I really wanted to share um, personally as well. Um, so there haven't really been any serious consequences, um, touch wood, so far. Um, Apart from a couple of extra additions to your ASIO file. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some some strange things have happened um, numerous times around exhibition openings where my website suddenly disappeared and I had to kind of put it up again. Um, so that was a bit odd, but if anything, that was uh, maybe just some kind of lame form of intimidation. I'm, I'm here sitting next to you right now, so don't have too many troubles with the with the authorities at this stage. Tell us about some of the other key works in the exhibition, which is on at 45 downstairs from the 21st of March until the 1st of April. Yep. Um, So Mind the Gap kind of broadly looks at a whole range of what I feel are Australian issues, whether it's, you know, the tensions between, say, you know, large mining corporations and First Nations people, um, kind of looking at land rights versus mining rights, um, our relationship to... uh, I guess ourselves, it's really a quite, uh, the show's looking at, you know, how we view ourselves and how we think of ourselves. And I think my idea of being an Australian and um, was quite changed by a trip that I did in 2014. That's where a lot of the inspiration came from the show. Um, I basically flew to Perth and then hitchhiked for three months. Um, first time travelling solo, first time travelling into remote parts of Australia as like an adult. Um, so when coming back to Melbourne after having been in remote parts of Arnhem Land and various areas in Western Australia, um, I really I was coming home but I felt alienated and I felt really quite shocked at just how um, westernised and colonialised things were. Um, so there's an image there called For Those Who've Come Across the Seas, um, which I guess is like an abstract portrait almost of Australia. Um, it's this kind of geometric shape of, you know, fences and these fences are almost like a symbol of control and ownership um, and there's this kind of raging ocean sea around it and that's kind of a commentary on i guess things like our refugee policy, policy and, and so forth border protection. Yeah. yeah the fact yeah. that the fact that our national anthem says for those who've, who've come across the seas we've boundless we've what is it what's the line uh, with we, boundless planes yeah to share. it's just all a bit of a you know identity circus I, I i felt like that needed to be explored and at the time you know 2014 2015 the political landscape in australia was probably quite um disenchanting for a lot of young people so i was definitely part of that movement wanting to make art about 
who we are and what we stand for and the contradictions in that as well. Um, um, yeah. Another image in the exhibition, A Quiet Day on the Merry Creek, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure will resonate for uh, a lot of listeners uh, living in the inner north. The, the Merry Creek is such a familiar part of the landscape in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also significant because I believe it was on the banks of the Merry Creek where a treaty was signed uh, by between John Batman and uh, some of the, the local Indigenous peoples. Mm. Um, that treaty, uh, kind of in inverted commas, uh, has come under increased attention recently with the campaign to remove Batman's name from, Indeed, from the yeah. area. Yeah. But um, you're evoking the, the Indigenous uh, life of the area, d- setting people within uh, a very Europeanised landscape. Europeanised? I'm not sure that's even a <laughs> word, but talk to us about this image. Sure. Um, so I saw a painting of Tom Roberts a number of years ago, um, and it's called A Quiet Day on the Merry Creek, so this is like an appropriation of that work, um, where these two kind of pioneering men with their slacks and their hats on and their shirts were sitting down, um, and I thought, wow, well, this this place has changed a lot since Roberts made this painting. Um, so I wanted to remake the work in a way that I thought was reflective of a more modern, more inclusive, more diverse Australia, um, and so that hence I've used that kind of bridge crossing the river to kind of join cultures or connect cultures or connect our past with our future. Um, and then Lauren Garner and um, the wonderful Neil Morris um, were in that image as a male and female, Indigenous, non-Indigenous. Um, and I just thought that was a nice kind of way to reimagine what was an old essentially colonial painting. Um, yeah, so that, that was that one. Yeah. If you want to look at some of Christian's work while we're having the conversation, you can go to his website. Uh, it's Christian with a K, K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. The surname is Lamley Rough, spelt L-A-E-M-M-L-E. R-U-F-F.com. So Well done. <laughs> it's a long one. It is. Uh, but so uh, if you jump online and look at his work, you'll get a, a sense of some of the scale and, the, and the, the vigorous kind of quality of his photography. Christian, as to be actually two questions, the first of one of which is why work with photography as a medium? What is it about the medium that has mm-hmm. made you focus on this as, a, as an artistic area? Sure. Um that's a good question. I guess I like the immediacy of it and I like that it has a real connection to documentary. Um, there's a real kind of documentary core in this series of work. But then I think I went to Mona a few years ago and was just kind of blown away and realised that my practice had to shift after that experience. So I used to just print images, frame them and call that a show and, and exhibit it and that was kind of done. Um, whereas this work's quite different in that I've used found materials, I've used collage, I've used light boxes, there's a soundscape piece, there's some melted laptops, there's a whole range of kind of materials and mediums involved. And so that's essentially me as a photographer just saying, right, I need to extend and explore more and develop um, both in the kind of ideas and um, the concepts, but also just the materials used. Um, and I really experimented with framing as well. There's mirrored frames and fake grass frames and old colonial style frames that are almost a bit tongue in cheek. So it was really fun just to kind of throw all the rules out the window and just go for it with this show. And clearly throughout the, the exhibition, whether it's uh, the works referencing Fukushima, for example, and the mm-hmm. nuclear disaster there, or whether it's uh, images of Australian Earth uh, and which kind of question who owns the earth and 
is it a is it uh, a thing of its own or is it just a product to be bought and sold so there's a really mm. strong political theme running through the work as well and and an astute social awareness but who's going to go and look at these images uh, do you think you will change the minds of of people perhaps when they look and consider some of these images or is the the it, the classical problem of how do we, we stop singing only to the choir yeah. and reach out to people who, for whom the political and social themes you're exploring may be provocative, may be challenging, but who may also be open yeah. to reconsidering their perspective. I think that's the real challenge of the artist. How do you connect with an audience that aren't your best friends and you know, your mates that you party with and those kinds of things? You really need to extend out to a diverse audience. Um, I think that can be done really well through, well, exhibiting widely in galleries and areas that you don't... Um, don't necessarily think you know you would usually exhibit in um also the media is a really good way to be able to um get images out there not in a kind of contemporary art way but so the pine gap image for example i put that into galleries but i've also put that into newspapers um and journals and stuff so people would be reading it that might not go into art galleries um i think if anything um like art can be really powerful but it, I don't think art by itself can change someone's mind overnight I think it when art's aligned with a social movement then it has a lot more momentum and a lot more credibility um, so I think if I can kind of align myself with with social movements that I believe in and let my art be supportive of that then then that suddenly has a bit of power the exhibition uh, that we're discussing, Mind the Gap, is on at 45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne, from next week, the 21st of March. That's which right. Is a, it's a Tuesday night. A Tuesday so night. Come on down at the opening if you want to. Easy to get along to. So opening on that Tuesday, the 21st, uh, and then running through until the 1st of April. More information about opening hours and exhibition times at www.45downstairs.com. And if you want to know more about Christian Lanley Ruff's uh, artistic practice and see some examples of the work, you can go to his website website christianlamleyruff.com that's christian with a k uh l-a-e-double-m-l-e lamleyruff r-u-double-f.com christian thanks for coming in thanks so much richard cheers I'm joined in the studio by choreographer Sandra Parker and artist Ryan Hinkley it's Ryan sorry uh Ryan sorry my apologies um uh, about to talk about small details, which is on at uh, Dance House as part of Dance Massive, the contemporary dance festival. So, um, is hot weather better to to, to dance in? Are bodies uh, looser? Yeah, I guess to a point, but then uh, I I don't think you'd want it want too much of it. Um, it can be a little bit draining after a while. But yes, heat's good for the muscles and the joints, and yeah, cool. Back to contemporary dance. So. Um, Sandra, let's talk about small details, mm -hmm. your yeah. latest work, which mm -hmm. I understand, uh, amongst other elements, is looking at kind of minimalist movement. Uh, yeah, I guess it's um, constructed from a whole range of kind of quite small actions that slowly expand out over time, over the work. There's a lot of, um, I guess, repetition and cyclic kind of action that... Um, uh, whether it's really minimal or not in the end, I think is the question that perhaps it's um, proposing that that are these things that we're um, drawing attention to actually a lot richer and bigger and fuller than we imagine they might be. 
And one of the things that is uh, that helps define this particular production, Small Details, is the use of kinetic sculpture yes. in the work, which yes. is, Rian, your contribution That's to right. the work. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, initially Sandy had a, um, a development uh, showing um, in uh, South Melbourne and uh, the, the work is intricate, uh, perhaps not minimal, but it, 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 it's mm. intricate. And uh, we were looking at how we'd do the staging and whether it would require some uh, video or something. And uh, in the end, it, it came down to some objects in the space seemed to suit it better. And um, it, it, the, 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 there's an element of the work that uh, involves repetition and um, it sort of it felt like... Uh, it doesn't look like robotic action, but it felt like robotic action could match that work quite well. Now, this is part of an ongoing trend, or, or not necessarily a trend, but certainly an aspect of contemporary dance in Melbourne, the use of objects in the space alongside dancers and the contrast between the movement of the body versus mechanical movement. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, a small Prometheus by Steph Lake and Robin Fox from mm. 2013, or more recently... Um, uh, uh, Anthony Hamilton and Alastair McIndoe dancing with with tiny right, robots, right. Yeah. for example. What is it that fascinates you, Sandra, about contrasting the movement of the body versus a more mechanical movement? Um, I think, well, there's a whole kind of aspect about dance that's um, about kind of perfection and about attaining a particular kind of ideal performance of something. So I think there's something about matching the body and human movement and our individual, uh, I guess, expression of how we um, move against this other kind of automated or regular kind of um, normal, you know, sort of way of doing things. So, yeah, I guess it was about... um, what do we see as different? What do we see as individual? What happens when things go slightly longer or shorter than the automated kind of repetition of something? And, Reen, you I mean, you're experienced with working with choreographers and dancers um, you're involved with Chunky Move, for example, as well. Mm-hmm. So presumably bringing your kind of knowledge base to a work isn't necessarily a challenge anymore, but is it still... Um, uh, is it a challenge in some ways in terms of integrating uh, a different movement into a dance piece? I would say it's still a challenge. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm confident. But um, <laughs> the, um, uh, th- this one was interesting. I hadn't built uh, robotics like this for a, for a work before and it was more about... Um, it wasn't trying to integrate it in as much as make it work with the dancers, sort of sit beside the dancers, I suppose, a bit more than, um, mm. than, than working with them. And, and I think that's what sort of works about the work is they're not trying to mimic or even work in time with them um, so much as they sit beside it. And I think that sort of gave me quite a lot of freedom to do... And, you know, and, and Sandy was great in just letting me come up with ideas that I wanted to work with, different ways of um, objects moving, different sort of kinetic forms. Mm. How long has the work been in development? Um, this is its second season at Dance House for Dance Massive. Um, I think probably two years, so three years now, we've been working on this piece. Yeah. And it also had a, in a slightly different form, had a season at Sarah Scout um, where we did it in a gallery, which was sort of really interesting to sort of shift it into another space. How did that change the work and how did it change audiences' perceptions of the work if they're looking at it more as an art installation perhaps rather than as a dance performance? 
Um, I think it was challenging for me as a choreographer because, you know, dance works in time. It's over, you know, a duration that we understand what its effect is and how it's how it can have an effect on you. And in the gallery situation, of course, you know, people are quite, you know, very quick with how they often come in and look at work and then they're gone in, you know, 10 seconds later and so on. So I had to really think about how can I make sure that each moment of this installation captures what it is that I want to communicate about the work um, for the viewer. So that was the one thing to really try and tackle. And the other thing that I enjoyed about Sarah Scout Presents was the proximity that I could bring the viewer much closer to the movement and to the bodies and the performers than you can do in the theatre, which relies on a different kind of spatial relationship between um, the viewer and the work. And so what about then bringing it back into a performance mode and back into uh, the the space at Dance House? Has it changed and shifted again? Yeah, well, the Sarah Scout Presents work um, doesn't have the sound score that um, David Fransky's created for this version. Um, So sound is a big component of the piece um, at Dance House. The way the sound integrates the movement and the movement of the sculptures into a kind of very three-dimensional space really makes that kind of very immersive experience work in the theatre differently to it. Sarah Scout Presents the machines were just the machines. Um, and the performers were there and there was some other sort of sculptural elements and drawing and so on um, as part of that project. And does the soundscape then alter people's perceptions of the machines? If, cause I would yeah. imagine that in the gallery, for example, the, the sound of the movement would then become part of the score of the work, whereas yeah, it, now... It really, well, we do micro the machines in the, in, the, in the theatrical show, so in the dance show, so there is a... Um, uh, Dave's put some um, mics in the machines and other machines trigger sound so that, that, that they're quite integrated. Um, but in, and in the gallery, that it was totally driven by just the raw sound of the machine, which was quite nice. And it was quite a... Um, it was sort of a different viewing experience, I felt, because in, in the... In the and, and the dance work, it's uh, it sort of dances with objects, and in the gallery, it was sort of objects with dancers. You know, it was a subtle shift, but it, it, um, it was interesting to see how how even you know, an audience and I saw the work slightly differently in those different spots. We're talking about Small Details, which is a, a work by choreographer Sandra Parker uh, on as part of Dance Massive at Dance House, uh, 150 Princes Street, Carlton North. Uh, and uh, my other guest in the studio is Rian Hinckley, who's created the kinetic sculptures for the work. Um, a question for both of you. Um, this is sparked by a conversation I had at the opening of Dance Massive the other the other night. Somebody suggested that because design seems to be such an integral part of the contemporary dancing in Australia generally, and particularly in Melbourne. And design is so beautifully integrated into almost every level and aspect of dance work, rather than just the designer coming in at the last minute and here's a backdrop for the for the dancers to perform mm. in front of or something. And uh, the proposal was made that this is because Australian dancers never really expect their work to tour because it's such a bloody big country mm. and they're not sure if they'll take it overseas. Uh, whereas works in the UK need to be packed in to suitcases and, and put on a train. Right, right. Um, would you agree with that? I, I think it's that. And it's also 
um, the history of work being made for very different spaces um, in Melbourne. We don't have that kind of traditional proscenium dance or uh, theatre, actually. We're often... Ha- well, dance house, I guess, could be seen as that. But the spaces at dance house, in fact, aren't used in a traditional um, way. So there's this... in way in which we're kind of inventing that relationship between um, the audience and the performer in the, all of these different kinds of spaces that dance happens in in and around Melbourne. And I think that just opens up the whole possibility of, well, how, what can we create with the space that we have? And I think that's a real strength of Melbourne dance, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I always start visually with every work, so I, I feel like how the... Work that the, the staging of it is is integral to, to, to how it looks, and and I think that um, you know it, it, this one in particular, we sort of started with the idea of sort of a, a, a minimalist look, but that 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 look of of um, factory or, or 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 trying to not make it look totally theatrical was always a, a big start. Brian, what attracted you, and when did and how when did you first get involved with with dance? Given that your background mm-hmm. is in filmmaking and as a new media artist, what was the, the the first connection, and why have you stayed involved with the dance? Uh, I think it was probably with you, Sandy. I think the first one was uh, <laughs> we've done a lot of work together. Um, it was a work called Out of Light, uh, which was a great show. Actually, I really like that one. Um, I uh, it, it, to me, it's to me, it's no, it's just another. Um, way of 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 showing my work, I suppose. I don't I don't see it actually that much differently to doing theatre or to doing visual art. I, you know, I don't I don't see them as a or, or filmmaking. I don't see them as that separate. You know, it's just another format in which to show your work. And Sandra, to flip that question around, yeah. what's the attraction for you of working outside strictly dance with with mm. other artists and bringing their ideas and works in? Well, I think I always like to try to arrive at something where all the elements of the work make up what it then becomes something other so if it's dance and kinetic sculptures or dance and video or dance and sound or or what have you um i want those elements to speak to each other in a way that they create this other thing that couldn't exist without that combination of elements so i think that's why our collaborations have kind of resulted in these very different kinds of projects because it's that sort of proposition of here's the movement now what do you think what's your response to it as a collaborator and then what can we make from that um and that's really challenging and i think it's important in a way to take dance in new directions through that kind of process and for the audience what do you want them to to come back now specifically to small details uh Given that some people listening may be thinking contemporary dance, I'm not, and contemporary dance involving kinetic sculpture, I'm not sure if this is for me. How do we encourage a non-dance audience to come and see contemporary dance? Because I think often there is a, it's a relatively small audience. So how do we expand Mm. that? Um, Well, you know, firstly, I think. Um, anybody that's interested in visual arts, in any kind of live performance, theatre, with music, sound, um, there's a lot of strength in the elements of the work that would speak to them. And then beyond that, I think, as a theatre experience, um, the feedback that we had last night after the opening really um, spoke to that um, experience of being a human in a world that maybe is becoming more um, regulated and re- 
defined and controlled and limiting and the way in which we are still human, we are still fallible, we are still something other than than that kind of way of being in the world. And yeah, I think that was a powerful experience for the for the people that came. So and I think also it's a great opportunity to see an enormous amount of skill on stage. Like the dancers, it, 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 I, I see it as a really hard work for them and they are amazing. And I think, you know, for people who don't see dance a lot, that that's a, an amazing thing to go and see someone do something so intricate and, and so well. Yeah, uh, look, it's one of the things yes. that keeps bringing me back to contemporary dance is the skill of uh, of dancers, uh, whether they're, whether it's, kind of fluid, rapid movement across the stage, whether it's intricate gestural work. Yeah. I, I just watch them and go, I am in awe of the control and the precision which dancers bring to their craft. Yeah. I think That's this true. is a great example of that, this work. Small Details is on at Dance House, 150 Princess Street, Carlton North, uh, until the 17th of March with performances at 8.30pm each night. You can f- find out more information at dancehouse.com.au. Uh, it's presented as part of the biennial dance festival Dance Massive, which is on now until the 26th of March. More info at dancemassive.com.au. Sandra Parker and Rian Hinckley, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank Thanks, you. Richard. Spiro Economopoulos is the director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Oh, sorry, it's Program Manager. Got to get the title right. Hold on. Also got to get you on the right microphone. There we go. So, yeah, Program Manager rather than Artistic Director. Or... Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Kind of, you know, the, the, the film guy. The film guy. and But more than a film guy because a, a f- kind of curating a festival program is not mm-hmm. just about the films on screen. There's no. a whole heap of ancillary events which go into making a festival what it is. Mm, absolutely. And look, you know, there's, you know, I'm part of a, an amazing team at the festival. Obviously, we're a small team as well. And I always, I'm always marvel at the fact that we, A, get it done and we get it done, with, you know, in an incredibly professional way. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of in. I think people would be kind of blown away by, you know, what kind of goes on behind the scenes and getting it up and happening and, you know, for it to be running so smoothly. Because there are five staff. Pretty much, you know, there's like about three sort of ongoing sort of people throughout the year and then it grows a little bit when the festival comes about. So it's fairly small and, you know, this is a big festival. So, you know. So helped by a very hands-on board of management who... When the festival is on, you will probably see the board um, hands on deck for everyone. Yeah. They're doing intros. We're all doing intros. Everyone's everyone's contributing, and you know, picking people up from airports. You know, there's no drivers. It's a, it's just us. Yeah. So uh, th- this is your second year as mm-hmm. uh, the, the the program manager of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Yeah. How do you feel about the festival now that you've had mm. one under your belt and a chance to? Yeah. The, presumably the first one was a bit of a panic. It was, yeah, it was an experiment. You know, I, I came into the job sort of halfway through, so I had much less time, I suppose, and had no idea what was going to happen to me during the festival. In some ways, that naivety was a bit of a buffer zone and it was kind of a nice protection. Now I know what's in store and maybe that's good or maybe that's bad, I don't know. But what, Are we talking about what kind of angry clientele coming no, up and saying? I think it's just more kind of the intensity of being in that festival thing, which actually is quite exhilarating i have to say you know it's i was surprised by yeah what 
you know, what fun it is really. Um, and I suppose this this time around I felt, you know, like you do every time uh, that you need to push yourself a bit more. We had a really successful festival last year um, with some really great audiences and numbers and, and really, you know, genuinely fantastic feedback about the program. So I thought, you know, got to push myself, got to take it to another level. You know, we... We were a little bit daring with some of the program stuff last year, so that was encouraging. So this time around we went, well, let's, you know, let's push that a bit further and, you know, see where we can go with this. So how do you push programming for a, for a film festival? Well, I think it's kind of about, you know, I, I think the great thing about the Queer Film Festival and I imagine other festivals is um, the outreach you get from other um, organisations are organizations um people you know programmers you know for example our animation shorts program was uh actually curated in um the fantosh festival in switzerland um they had approached us and said they were really keen to do something with us and put a an animation shorts package together which is wonderful it's a really really great collection of shorts and um obviously anna helms who has um curated our wildings package and it was really exciting to um when anna approached us about the idea idea about doing a sort of a, a queer experimental kind of you know skillshare and film program and I just thought it was really great to kind of bring that back into the fold in the festival and sort of push you know push the boundaries of you know what queer cinema is and something that's going to be a little bit radical and a little bit different and you know we always kind of go on about being proudly different so let's go there. One of the other things that's different this year is the the Melbourne Queer Film Festival has become a member of uh, a, a, a tribe of yes. film, fe- film festival in the Asia Pacific. Yeah speaking of collaborations that's the other great thing that happened the Asia Pacific Queer Film Festival Alliance uh, we were approached about joining um, this collective, which is uh, about 14 or so, it's growing actually as we speak, of um, queer film festivals around the Asia-Pacific region. And it's a really great opportunity, A, for um, our audiences and us to be exposed to queer work from those areas and also for us to promote Australian work to them. So we've got a bit of a, a share sort of... Um, sort of situation going where we kind of, you know, exchange films, share information and promote, you know, you know, work from, you know, from here to there. So I think it's really exciting and, you know, it would be great to see how this grows. So what are the trends in queer filmmaking at the moment? Because it's been interesting to see, say, 10 years ago, uh, we, there was, uh, we started to see much more, much stronger films coming from Latin America and South America, for example, mm. Um, mm. and the growth in films exploring uh, trans and gender identity yeah. uh, has been a more recent trend, for mm. example. So what are, what's, yeah. what's happening in the world of queer cinema? Well, actually, I still think that's actually really strongly the case. So I have to say the the work that is coming from um, Spanish language countries is is really amazing, and there is so much out there. And obviously, um, the, there's you know richer content in terms of the trans films. We've got this you know really straight, a fantastic you know trans shorts package this year. But um, that uh, is certainly coming. And I, I guess in terms of trends. Um, I'm kind of more interested to see what happens next year, I suppose, post-Trump and the world we're kind of in at the moment. And I'm very interested to see the response we'll be getting from queer filmmakers in general in terms of, you know, the climate. And so I sort of, I mean, yeah, I'm kind of thinking ahead at the moment. I'm kind of really interested to see what's going to happen there. Well, you don't think too far ahead because no, you've still got a festival coming up. I've running. got my 2018 folder already. It's all happening. I'm don't not worry surprised. I'm not surprised. Now, tonight is the opening night of the Melbourne Queer Film. Mm. 
mm-hmm. Festival. Uh, it's running from today, the 16th through to the 27th of March. So I'm glad you could actually be here because yeah. opening, opening night day must be pretty frantic. Look, I've got to work on my speech. I'll just say that much. But, <laughs> you know, it's halfway there, so it'll be fine. And the fact that the program is bettered down and your guests are bettered down and yeah. so forth. So you can kind of breathe a little bit at mm. the moment. But talk to us about some of the, the films in the festival and some of, uh, for example, the selection of international features. And I'm going to preface this by saying that I know one of the challenges for you in your role mm-hmm. is that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, a queer film festival was the only place that a lot of queer cinema would show. Now, as the world has changed, you're competing with MIF, you're competing with uh, the various foreign language film festivals around Melbourne Absolutely. for content. So there may be some great queer films that you haven't been able to obtain because they might be showing at the British hmm. Film Festival or the yeah. Irish Film Festival yep. or whatever. But talk to us about some of the, the international highlights. Yeah, so yeah, the, you're absolutely right. I mean, those challenges have become bigger and obviously we haven't even talked about streaming services, which is another challenge that kind of gets thrown at us. But, you know, I always kind of think that even though, you know, we have some films that were on at MIF this year, I always feel that, you know, this is another opportunity to see these films that actually rarely get exposure and you know, seen on the big screen. And I think it's really important to sometimes see these films in a queer context in a queer film festival. And so I think that's um, really great anyway. And, um, yes, look, the international films this year have been really, you know, really strong. I, you know, like I said, before I'd started halfway through the year the first time around, and this time around I had the opportunity to go to Frameline, for example, and see some films there before I, you know, started programming. And so... You know, Tom Frameline Cam- is the the queer film festival in San Francisco. It's one of the biggest queer film festivals in the world. It's um, it's really great. And so, our closing night film, Women Who Kill, for example, um, was from Frameline. And Women Who Kill is a a really excellent uh, American comedy about uh, two ex-lovers who have a podcast about female serial killers, Ingrid Jungerman, who wrote and directed and stars in it. Um, you may know from uh, some web series that she's done in the past. Um, she is really great. It's a really great film. It's really smart. It's really sharp. Um, I think it's a really interesting movie about you know, how screwed up we can be in terms of the choices we make in relationships. But, you know, I'll let people take that from the film. Um, Tomcat is a really, uh, you know, amazing Austrian film, which, uh, you know, I've been kind of going to people, you know, if you like Michael Haneke, you might like this film. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's just a really, again, you know, really interesting film about how tenuous relationships are and the worlds that you kind of create around you. Um, um, I think it's kind of a really interesting film for that. Um, we've got a really, uh, you know, Great. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, Below her mouth actually is a which is sold out, but um, you know, watch this space. But Below her mouth is a fantastic um, movie, which is really interesting because it was completely it was written and directed the crew, the cast, all women, um, in terms of the making of this film, and it's kind of got a real kind of growls, groundswell around it. It was one of the first things that sold out at the festival and it's kind of a really interesting film. So Now, uh, there's a filmmaker whose work really seems to polarise audiences whose work you're showing, uh, Marco Berger. Um, is, uh, is it Taekwondo? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's funny, I talked to a few people about that because obviously we've we've shown some of his films at the festival previously. I think Plan what, B. Plan B. Which and, I adored. Yeah. And Hawaii, which is real. Some people just yeah. hate yeah. because he's, there's a, a languidness to his 
his filmmaking. Mm, mm, absolutely, yeah. And I think, yeah, so pe- people can be really divisive with his films. But I think Taekwondo, which is the movie that we're screening this year, is a really fascinating film, I guess, about the the gay male gaze, I suppose, in a way. And I think what's interesting about it too is the way that it plays with um, uh, how heterosexual men interact with each other and the, you know, erotic nature of that as well. So it's kind of the sort of homoerotic nature of how heterosexual men interact. And it's got a wonderful payoff as well, which I won't say much about, but I think it's a, it's a really good film. Heterosexual men can be very gay when, they they're, really when, when they're together. It's very yeah. strange. Um, uh, let's talk about some of the other kind of strands of the festival, uh, the documentary program, which is always strong. It is always strong. And, you know, this year we've got um, the amazing film Kiki, which... Uh, is uh, if you know if you're familiar with that cult, you know the queer classic Paris is Burning. This is the you know millennial version of that about um, young LGBTIQ people in the ballroom scene, um, which is really really exciting. And uh, it's you know the one of the young trans women in it. I'll just say now I want her to be the next president of the United States. She's really amazing. Um, so I really like Kiki and also um, a really fantastic film called Outrun, which is about the, um, the world's only LGBTIQ political party, which surprisingly is in the Philippines, which is a, you know, a conservative, predominantly conservative Catholic country. And it's Lad Lad's the name of the political party and it's about their quest to elect the first trans um, congresswoman. And it's about that race, that political race to kind of, um, you know, leading up to election. It's really, you, even if you don't know what the, the result of that was, it's a really exciting, thrilling and, you know, I think really um, inspiring documentary. I really, you know, that one's, it was a bit of a standout for me when I saw that. We're talking to Spiro Economopoulos about the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, which opens tonight and runs through until the 27th of March. What about Australian films? Yeah, well, actually, um, our centrepiece this year is a, a film called Pulse, which really took me by surprise when I saw it. Um, we screened, uh, it's written and directed by Daniel Monks, and uh, sorry, written and starring Daniel Monks, directed by Stevie Cruz Martin. Uh, they had a short film in our Australian shorts package last year called Marrow, so this is their featured debut, which is completely independently made. Um, and it's, you know, I, yeah, it's hard to get, describe. I mean, at heart it's, uh, I mean, I've been describing it as a body swap sort of fantasy movie but uh you know i think that kind of undermines the kind of realism that the filmmakers kind of approach the subject about it's about a young uh, gay man with a disability and his unrequited passion for his straight best friend and the measure the quite radical measure he takes to kind of pursue that which is um to swap his body with a, a young able-bodied woman so that's the premise it's quite you know uh, bold, I guess, and it might, you know, I think it could be a little bit divisive, but I just think it's really beautifully made and um, it's a really exciting film. So I hope people will see that one. It's been really interesting to see the growth in uh, Australian queer feature making over mm. over recent years compared to uh, going back over a decade mm. when I was in the programming committee at the MQFF, probably more than a decade, um, and trying to find Australian features yeah. was of, was almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the, the last couple of years, we've mm. had significant growth in mm. uh, queer feature making and documentary features as well. Mm. Um, t- uh, finally, let's talk about the 
the the ancillary part of the program. So panels, workshops, mm. events, yeah. speed dating, yeah. uh, all of that is part of the festival. Because mm. to me, the thing that I love about any festival yeah. is not just seeing work, but yeah. the opportunity to discuss work with friends and strangers, mm-hmm. uh, the opportunity to explore the world around the mm. film. And an, an opportunity to offer discussion, you know, uh, with our audiences and to engage with the work, yeah, like you said, outside of just watching it in a cinema. Um, we've got a really great uh, panel this year called Criminalising Queer. Um, that's connected to a, a documentary that we're screening called Southwest of Salem, the um, story of the San Antonio Four. Southwest of Salem, uh, you may or may not know, is a documentary about four um, lesbian Latina women who were falsely accused of a you know really horrible crime of um, sexual assault against some young girls. And it's uh, the documentary is about the way that their sexuality was. Um, I guess demonised um, in the trial in terms of accusing them, and this is about their kind of quest to for exoneration. And so, criminalising queer panel looks at that film, along with some other movies and documentaries, like real tri- crude tri- crime story documentaries that uh, dealt with the way that uh, particularly people's queerness and sexuality was used against them in the court cases. So, it's going to be a really interesting panel. We have um, we'll have some. Uh, uh, feed, we'll have some uh, feedback from the director of um, Southwest of Salem for that forum as well. So it'll be really interesting to see um, that. And also the panel around um, our documentary short, Out of the Closets into the Streets, which is about the history of the LGBTI uh, movement in Melbourne, which, you know, you may or may not know a lot about. So um, that's going to be really interesting with, you know, um, people like Jude Munro and Dennis Altman are going to be on the panel, people who feature in the documentary and who were, you know, right there, you know, during that. So it'd be really exciting. That's, I think that kind of is currently sold out, but... You know, hey, you never know. It's always worth turning up and uh, trying your luck for the standby list for those kind of events because exactly. somebody who has booked tickets may mm. not be able to get a babysitter. They can't yeah. make breakdown. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. The Melbourne Queer Film Festival is running from the 16th until the 27th of March. Uh, more details at mqff.com.au. Uh, the focus of the program is at ACME. Uh, mm-hmm. at Federation Square. So get along there uh, and see some films, meet some yeah. people uh, and eat some popcorn. Please do. But maybe don't eat your popcorn in the cinema because the crunching gets really annoying. <laughs> Spiro, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.